This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing David de Jong about his book titled Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Uh, It's just come out uh, with HarperCollins, published in 2022. Um, And this is a really stunning work in a lot of ways of investigative journalism, really quite intense research went into this. Um, where David Young reveals the story of how some of Germany's wealthiest business dynasties amassed quite a lot of money and power by abetting the atrocities of the Third Reich, of the Nazis. Um, So in this book, he uncovers these histories, um, both during the Nazi era and then kind of where that money went and what happened with these families afterwards to really show that while this part of these families' um, business stories and family histories are maybe not publicly known, that does not mean that they're not there. And so this book does a lot of work to uncover these previously hidden histories. So thank you very much, David, for being on the podcast to be interviewed. It's a pleasure, Miranda. It's good to be here. Could you please start us off by um, introducing yourself a bit, your background, and sort of explain why you decided to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So... So um, I am a journalist. Currently, I'm a Middle East correspondent for uh, based out of Tel Aviv, um, writing for the uh, uh, Dutch financial newspaper called um, the, the Financial Daily. Um, but um, the last four and a half years I spent um, in Berlin uh, researching and writing uh, Nazi billionaires. Um, and... You know, the reason I got to it was in late uh, November 2011, I joined this new team at Bloomberg News, an investigative team which covered hidden wealth and uh, billionaire for billionaire fortunes and and kind of non um, like family owned companies, non stock exchange listed family owned companies and family offices. And I was hired as, you know, to cover the North Americas um, from New York. And I was soon asked, because I'm a native Dutchman, to if I could also include the German-speaking countries to my beat for the, for the team. And, you know, it was really through that, um, that through this assignment, that... I started reporting on Germany and Switzerland and Austria from New York. We'd spend a month a year, uh, mainly through between Thanksgiving and, 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 and Christmas, you know, traveling around Germany and Switzerland and Austria, 
I'm reporting on these stories, you know, interviewing uh, family offices, family-owned companies, executives, their owners, and really coming back with these stories about, you know, that mix the financial and the historical uh, with regards to, you know, German business families. And what I found and what I ended up reporting on was this kind of, yeah, well, the the, the, the whitewashing that was still going on. What I found that led me to write this book is actually a better way to put it, um, were the, the, the whitewashing that companies like BMW and Porsche, but particularly the families that control them um, today, were doing in the names of their, you know, uh, patriarchs, their company founders, uh, their fathers and grandfathers, celebrating their business successes as BMW savior or uh, the, founder, the, the first designer of the Porsche sports car, but leaving out, you know, and, 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 and celebrating the business successes to global foundations and media prizes and academic chain and by funding academic chairs and, and, you know, through corporate headquarters, but leaving out have anywhere online or in print, um, there were crimes that these men committed or the, the, the memberships that they had during the Nazi era with the SS or the Nazi party. So they were basically whitewashing um, uh, the histories of these men. And that is really the reason that led me to write this book is to, to, to you know, expose this whitewashing, this kind of this very insidious practice that is happening in Germany, where some of Germany's wealthiest and most powerful business dynasties are pretending, are purporting to have reckoned uh, with the Nazi era crimes of their fathers and grandfathers, but are actually are hiding the facts uh, in plain sight um, and are subsequently ended up end up whitewashing their, their life stories. So You've mentioned, obviously, this focuses on a few particular families, and I think some of the names of the families may be less well-known, but obviously some of the brands that you've already mentioned, BMW and Porsche, certainly are quite famous. Um, So to kind of give us a foundation for the interview, can you introduce us to the sort of main families that you trace in the book? Of course. So I end up choosing five families or five dynasties, five German business dynasties. in the book, for the book. And I chose those five because they are still relevant in global his, in, in global business and uh, you know, European business and German business today. Um, and where the shareholder groups are also quite small, where the economic power is most concentrated. So the main dynasty I write about is the Quant dynasty, uh, of which two members today control BMW. Um, they are Germany's richest family. Uh, the second family is the, the Flick family. Um, their patriarch, Friedrich Flick, controlled the uh, largest steel coal, privately held, largest privately held steel coal and weapons conglomerate during the Third Reich. Ended up being convicted at Nuremberg for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Was released on good behavior. Uh, from Landsberg prison in 1950 and by 90, by, by 1959 was back on top as Germany's wealthiest man as controlling shareholder of Daimler-Benz. And his heirs today don't have an operative company anymore, but they just manage their billions and, uh, and multi-millions. 
Thirdly, the, the third family I write about is the uh, Von Fink family, where the patriarch uh, co-founded Allianz and Munich Re, the largest insurers and, and reinsurers uh, in global business today. And also a private bank called Merck Fink, which they ended up selling to Barclays um, a couple uh, decades ago. And it is um, August von Fink Senior, who was a patriarch, who was the um, um, the son of uh, of of, um, of the patriarch who founded Allianz and Munich Re, but he inherited all the, these board positions, his supervisory board positions at Allianz and Munich Re when he was 25 in 1926, and he was quite you know already very he was Bavaria's wealthiest man, uh, became then Bavaria's wealthiest man, and uh, very very you know deeply conservative right wing already. And, you know, Hitler, because he was not only Bavaria's wealthiest man, he was also considered Bavaria's stingiest man. And then Hitler gave him the assignment, because he didn't want to spend any money of his own, gave von Fink the assignment to fundraise for a pet project, that uh, for one of Hitler's pet projects, which ended up being the, the House of German Art, a museum that still stands uh, prominently in Munich today. He successfully fundraised 20 million Reichsmark, um, of uh, industrialists and financiers, of fellow industrialists and financiers, and as a thank you, gets to Aryanize. Um, the, the Nazi regime allows von Fink, I was von Fink Senior, to Aryanize the Rothschild Bank in Vienna, which at the time was the largest Austrian private bank, and the Dreyfus Bank in um, in Berlin. And he got off scot free after the war. Um, and fourthly, I write about the Porsche Pierre family, um, Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre, together with their Jewish co-founder, um, Adolf Rosenberger, founded the Porsche uh, car design firm in 1930. Um, of course, Ferdinand Porsche ends up uh, being tasked by Hitler and convincing Hitler to, to put the Volkswagen into production. Um, and Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre, which is his son-in-law, end up pushing out out of Rosenberger in 1935 from the Porsche car design firm because he was Jewish and buying him out uh, his stake at the nominal value of his of his of his stake in Porsche as opposed to the real market value. So it was also a clear case of arianization. But of course, Vernon Porsche and and Anton Pierre also end up uh, becoming directors of the Volkswagen factory. Where supposedly the the Volkswagen was supposed to be put into production, but instead, when the Second World War breaks out, um, the Volkswagen factory complex is retooled as a massive uh, armaments factory where tens of thousands of forced slave laborers um, are uh, exploited um, and kept in in forced labor camps and and sub concentration camps on the factory complex. A very important Anton Pierre also goes called free um, after the war. Um, and today their heirs control the Volkswagen Group, which is the largest car maker uh, in the world, one of the largest car makers in the world today. Not only controls Volkswagen and Porsche, but also Audi and Lamborghini and Bentley and Seat and Skoda. And uh, the final family I write about is the, uh, I write about is the Utker family which controls um, Dr. Utger um, and another conglomerate 
called the Utker uh, siblings, and they have they oversee two empires of, of baked goods and and frozen pizzas and pudding mixes and and cake and cake and baking mixes, but also luxury hotels in in London and the Côte d'Azur and Saint Barts and uh, and massive uh, beer breweries and um, and non alcohol and, and alcoholic and, and spirits and wines and such. And um, their patriarchs too were they were much smaller in comparison during the Third Reich than Dr. Utker was much smaller in compared to the other families I write about. But it's a uh, Rudolf August Utker was the the patriarch or the father of the um, uh, of the, today's controlling shareholders um, of the aforementioned conglomerates. I was really a convinced Nazi um, and and joined the voluntarily joined the Waffen SS um, because his stepfather Richard Kazalowski, who at the time was CEO of Dr. Edgar, was also a convinced Nazi and and uh, you know it was really a family full of Nazis. And yeah, there's other five families. Just to get back really briefly to the Quant family, um, so two of the heirs control BMW today. But it was a patriarch, Gunter Quant, and his uh, eldest son, Herbert Quant, who ended up saving BMW from bankruptcy. But together with his father, Gunther, um, they controlled the AFA, um, which was a massive uh, battery company during the Third Reich. Um, today it's called Varta, which, which produces the uh, batteries in AirPods. Um, and they controlled uh, DWM, which was a massive... Um, weapons and ammunitions conglomerate so um gunter Kwan particularly you know ended up using almost sixty thousand forced forces slave laborers in his companies uh Aryanized and expropriated uh various businesses from both jewish and non-jewish business owners and um also was one of the largest weapons producers in the third reich and also got off him and his son also got off scot-free um during after the uh, after the end of, of the second world war you know and today you have germany's wealthiest heirs living working from the gunter quant house and awarding the herbert quant media prize and bmw's largest charitable foundation is the uh, bmw foundation herbert quant and there's no mention of uh, of their war crimes whatsoever on uh, on these you know global foundations and media prizes and again that's the reason I I wrote the book. So I think that's a really great um, introduction to not just the five families that you cover, but kind of the ways in which they're interlinked with the Nazi regime, and then what the consequences were, or perhaps more importantly, were not afterwards. Um, so thank you for giving us those introductions um, with some of the details of how they're involved. And obviously the book has so much more detail than we're going to be able to get into um, in this interview. So I'm going to kind of ask about bits and pieces of it based on things you've already mentioned and things that come up in the book. Um, and one of the kind of places I'd love to start uh, is that you've, each of the families, you've already sort of discussed um, ways in which they benefited from the Nazis, kind of which companies and which industries, um, you know, fundraising over here, forced labor, organization. Um, but for one family in particular, there was also a very personal connection to the Third Reich, which once I, I didn't know about it, I, I don't know how many people do, but the personal connection makes it even more strange 
in a way that uh, the family then not, nothing happened to them after the war. So can you tell us about this link between the Nazis and big business, not just through the kind of, okay, they owned this company and this labor, but they're linked through what was called at the time the ideal marriage of the Third Reich. Yeah. Can you tell yes, us about that connection? Yes. Sure, sure. So Günter Kvant, who I've just introduced, probably, you know, one of the main characters in my book, um, Günter Kwan's wife, Ant, uh, Ant, uh, Antonia, dies in the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, and she dies in October 1918. And he is, Günter Kwan at the time is 37 and um, is, you know, a workaholic, a widower, um, suddenly was about to move from the, from the provinces in Berlin, from the provinces uh, outside of Berlin to Berlin. Um, and you know he's really set he he he's really aspiring to to you know he's born into this wealthy textile producing family and he's seen as the you know as the he's he's the heir he's the, he's a crown prince uh, and he's he's the oldest of his uh, of his brothers and um he's making the move to berlin to really expand uh, to expand the family business or expand his business and leaving his brothers to lead to textile factories um, back home. But all of a sudden he's a widower and with, with, with two young sons. And on a train ride in the spring of 1919 from Berlin to central Germany, he meets a 17-year-old girl called Magda Friedländer, born Magda Rachel. But she after, and, and, and he becomes enamored with her. And at their third date, he asks for her hand. He's 20 years her junior. And she is an only child and, and she's not, she was born out of wedlock and, you know, her, 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 her mother's current marriage with her, with her stepfather is also, who was Jewish, uh, is also about to, to be divorced. And she says yes, and they get married. Um, but the marriage is a complete mismatch and to have one son uh, together, Harald. But by 1929, um, so a decade later, the marriage dissolves. And, you know, she's left with a royal alimony and, and takes care of her son. But then she quickly falls into the better circles of, of, of the, or the more, the more, the higher circles, the aristocratic circles uh, surrounding the Bergening Nazi party. And she ends up meeting Joseph Goebbels, and marrying Joseph Goebbels and Magda Goebbels, uh, Magda becomes Magda Goebbels. Magda Quant becomes Magda Goebbels, and and you know the unofficial first lady of the Third Reich, um, because in an arrangement that is made between Hitler uh, and Magda and Joseph Goebbels, Hitler, who is also enamored with Magda Goebbels, who is quite a femme fatale. Um, you know, Hitler promised he has to be, has to remain, or in his vision, has to remain, is married to the German people, so he has to remain a bachelor, and um, and secretly dates dates Eva Braun only uh, a day gets married to her a day before they commit suicide in uh, in in April nineteen thirty forty five, but he sees in in uh, so he sees. Joseph Goebbels and Magda Goebbels as their representation of what a union should look like or what a marriage should look like for the German people. 
um, uh, which is quite rather ironic because Joseph Goebbels and Magda Goebbels end up having countless of affairs, and and their marriage is 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 very far from perfect, and um, uh, of course it ends quite tragically because very quite <laughs> it ends very tragically in the sense that she ends up murdering her six children that she has from her marriage with Joseph Goebbels. Harold Quant survives the war. Um, uh, in, 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 and she ends up murdering or poisoning her six children in the Fuhrer bunker before committing murder-suicide with her husband, Josef Goebbels, on May 1st, 1945. But Günther Quant and Josef Goebbels, in the, in, in from, 1940, from 1931 on, when they get to meet each other, and have this rivalry, and Josef Goebbels ends up kidnapping, and Josef and Magda Goebbels ends up kidnapping Harald Quant, basically, and, and after a very long custody battle in 1934, and you know, using him as this kind of propaganda prop, um, or this Nazi propaganda prop. But interestingly enough, even though Harald Quant grows up in the most radical, arguably the most radical and most powerful family of the Third Reich, he never joins the Nazi party. And is more interested as a teenager in, and flunks out of the Hitler youth and is more interested in chasing, you know, girls and driving fast cars and motorcycles as opposed to, you know, embracing an, a, a totalitarian fascist ideology. So it is, it is, um, it is quite an interesting dynamic, uh, and, of course. And how does it yeah. uh, impact Gunther's sort of ties with Nazis and, um, both from a business level and personal, because you document in the book that when asked about this connection afterwards, he lies about kind of the extent of his connection. Um, so what was it really? Well, it is, I mean, it is an antagonistic relationship between the two. They, they really didn't like each other. I mean, they were both, you know, as power hungry as, as Joseph Goebbels was in politics and in the Nazi regime. So was Günther Quant in the business world. So, so this rivalry, which which ends, you know, I mean, they never get to like each other. But the rivalry that starts in 1931 and ends in 1934 with the kid, well, it starts in 1931 with the custody battle over Harald between Günther and Josef and Magda Goebbels, and ends in 1934 when, when. Um, Günther, when when Joseph and Magda Goebbels kidnap Harold, basically, or don't bring him back after Easter holiday, and of course at that point, you know, uh, Hitler is a, a year into his power, has become the Führer, and and you know there's little Günther Quant has little legal recourse, has no legal recourse basically, to try and get his son back. He later uses that after the war, that rivalry interesting enough to cast himself as a victim of the Nazi regime and to cast himself as somebody who, you know, who, who ends up being, I mean, brazenly claims to have become, to, to, uh, to, to have been persecuted uh, by the Nazi regime and nothing could have been farther, uh, could have been further from the truth. You know, Günther Quandt ends up becoming one of the largest weapons producers in Nazi Germany one of the largest exploiters of forced and slave labor, and one of the largest expropriators of of of, of Jewish and non-Jewish owned uh, businesses. So, given that, um, and given kind of what you've already discussed of 
the sheer extent to which these families were involved in, for example, organization, in the use of forced labor. Um, you've already mentioned that only one of these um, patriarchs goes on trial after the fall of the Nazi regime. Um, and he does go on trial and he does get convicted and then he's back at it very quickly. So before we kind of get into what happens to them after the trials, why is only one of them even put on trial in the first place? Yeah, it's so when when after the World War Two ends and, you know, Germany is, is occupied by the Allied forces um of course you have the the main nuremberg trial which is instituted where two dozen of of, of nazi germany's um highest ranking uh, politicians and and military leaders are indicted and tried and for the most part sentenced to death you know there was talks and following that you know there there are talks of of holding a successor trial uh, a successor kind of main Nuremberg trial, but then solely for industry for German industrialists and financiers and business executives and heirs. But that that trial never comes to pass because the Americans were worried that the Soviets were going to do to to turn it into an anti-capitalist show, show trial. The British, you know, were so economically weak that they didn't feel that they, you know, they they didn't feel. That, they just didn't want to finance yet another trial, another mass trial. And the Americans decide to go at it alone and hold these 12 successor trials uh, solely under American purview, where three of those trials end up being against industrialists. Friedrich Flick and his associates are one, who are indicted and sentenced. Alfred Krupp of the namesake uh, steel conglomerate and his associates are two and then thirdly it's ig farben at the time uh, the world's largest chemical and and, and pharmaceuticals conglomerate uh, round out the, the triumvirate of industrialist trials but of course in concurrence to that the cold war starts and you know there's a massive policy shift particularly from the united states by the united states which was really in charge here, where, you know, Nazi Germany and, and, and Nazi Germans quickly become ancient history. And a, a policy decision is made to rebuild a politically viable, economically viable and strong democratic West Germany as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and encroaching communism, of course, the, the Soviet occupied zone. Uh, which later becomes East Germany. Um, and, you know, this momentous policy shift also entails the accelerated handover of suspected Nazi war, of tens of thousands of suspected Nazi war criminals back to, to the West German, to the West German authorities. Um, uh, who, uh, in these, in the, and, and to, and to initiate, and the Germans that initiate this very flawed legal process, which is called denazification, which is a here we, which is a word we hear a lot today again, because it is what Vladimir Putin said, perversely says he's doing in, in Ukraine. But denazification actually referred to a very specific 
legal process in 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 in, in Germany in occupied Germany, um, where where you know which saw millions of Germans get off scot free um, for their crimes and sympathies that they that they had or committed during uh, during the Third Reich. So this is what happens to Gunther Quandt, I believe. This is what happens to Gunther Quandt, exactly. So uh, this you... is what happens to Gunther to Gunther Quandt, to Herbert Quandt, to August von Fink Senior, to Rudolf August Oetker, to Ferdinand and Ferry Porsche, to Anton Pierre. Right, but so the list of the people of who go through this is longer than the list who don't, right? Which is fascinating. So I wonder if you can maybe explain to us what actually this legal process is, perhaps through the example of what happens to Gunther? Sure. Let me let me explain to it more broadly because it was a very specific um, legal process before going into uh, individual cases. So denazification panels or trials or tribunals were, for the most part, laymen uh, uh, panels and committees, or the judges. Uh, for the most part, and the prosecutors for the most part, except for in the most serious cases, being laymen, um, where all Germans had to go through denazification, um, which is one of the one of the um, decisions that were made during the Potsdam, Potsdam Conference of August 1945, was one of the five Ds uh, of, of uh, the policy of occupied Germany. One of them was denazification. And one could be sentenced into one of five categories. You could either be, be a major offender, a offender, a lesser offender, a fellow traveler, or be exonerated. And of course, you know, the, the, the men was for the most part men, for almost exclusively, in charge of these denazification panels and committees didn't feel particularly inclined to judge their fellow German compatriots on crimes and sympathies that most of them had participated in. So it became so denazification. And that is where really the flaw, in, in my view, of, of, of that is where it went wrong with Germany's post-war reckoning is this flawed denazification. Um, um, you know, Germany was never properly denazified. Uh, and that you all can, can also see not only in the business world, but also in the legal world and in politics, there was just a continuation of money and power where you have this five year vacuum between 45 and 1950, uh, between the end of the Third Reich and the start of the economic miracle in, in West Germany in 1950, um, where, you know, where there wasn't a, a properly, there wasn't a proper reckoning. Um, with the Nazi era, uh, a, a proper legal judicial reckoning um, with, with, with the crimes and sympathies of millions of Germans. And, and you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was this flawed legal process of, of denazification um, that again saw um, the main characters in my book, with the exception of Friedrich Fleck, um, go go off scot-free and 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 continue unpunished, and also having their companies and their assets, um, you know, in West Germany at least, uh, returned and reinstated uh, to them 
everything in the Soviet occupied zone was was expropriated from them. Those that had assets there of my main characters. Um, and you know, taking the example of Gunter Quant, who was considered to be indicted in one of the industrialist trials for Nuremberg, but but never ended up there, could have easily supplanted or have or or or, or have, have have been indicted and sentenced there alongside Friedrich Flick in a separate trial, but ends up being deemed a fellow traveler. Um, in his in his denazification trial, which end up which ends up going all the way because the prosecutor Julius Herf in Bavaria, um, you know, ends up um, taking it to a higher court, which 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 you know leaves Günter Quant's uh, judgment of being a fellow travel of a mere fellow traveler. Mind you, we're speaking here about one of. Again, one of the largest weapons producers in the Third Reich, one of the largest exploiters of forced slave labor, and one of the largest beneficiaries of uh, Aryanizing expropriated companies in Nazi Germany and in Nazi occupied in German occupied territories, you know, is deemed a mere fellow traveler and has to pay, I think, his legal costs, and that that that's it. Um, and you know, it, there wasn't. Even though Julius Herf, as a prosecutor, was 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 a was a very good prosecutor, also ends up prosecuting Aus von Fink and is actually extorted by associates of Aus von Fink Senior um, um, because Julius Herf was 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 gay and 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 which was a crime at it, which and which was a crime in Western Germany technically up until 1994 um, and is extorted for his sexual orientation. Uh, and ends up lessening the indictment against Aris von Fink Senior. Um, and he is also deemed a mere fellow traveler. Um, and, you know, Rudolf Aris Utker is denazified by his own company, by Dr. Utker, by a panel within his own company, you know, and was a, was a voluntary Waffen SS officer. You know, so I can give many more examples, but I think you can get, get yeah. the drift of just how. How perverted and 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 flawed this this legal process of of denazification was. Yeah, no, I think that does really make it quite clear. Um, so thank you for giving us uh, the kind of process and then the examples. Um, so when these industrialists all don't get put on trial or put in jail, um, can you tell us kind of a bit about what happens to them and the companies um, after this? So nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, particularly. What happens to them? I mean, in this period of 1945 to 1950, this, this is a kind of the occupying of, of West Germany, the, occupy, the occupation of Germany. Of course, technically, East Germany becomes a satellite state for the Soviet Union. So in a way, it continues or at least continues to be occupied or not, not a free, continues to be controlled by a totalitarian regime. But in West Germany, at least, and all, of course, as I said before, all of their assets there were um, end up being expropriated. Uh, by the Soviet authorities. Um, but in West Germany, most of the companies like Porsche, like uh, Merck Fink, like Allianz, like, like um, um, Volkswagen, are put under asset control by the Allied authorities, whether this was in the British occupation zone or in the American occupation zone of West Germany. But again, as I earlier said, you know, all of the main characters in my book get their assets back 
um, the asset control or the asset freezes is removed at some point following the Nazification. That was basically the main hurdle for having asset control or asset freezes uh, by the Allied authorities lifted was a condition. Um, and they, you know, they get back to work uh, 1949 after the establishment of the, the Federal Republic of West Ger- of, of Germany, of West Germany. Uh, and in 1950, with the start of the economic miracle. And that is really when West Germany becomes really key again, well, particularly key to American interests because the United States, um, the Korean War starts, the Cold War has really heated up. Of course, the Korean War is a, is a, is a result in many ways of the, of the Cold War. And First, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, and then subsequently, President Eisenhower um, enact the War Defense Act uh, in the United States, which means that American factories uh, are mainly producing for the war effort in Korea. Now, a recently, you know, having returned to a democratic state and and being you know having been reestablished as a or having been established as a federal republic west germany which you know was again uh, europe's and the world's key industrialized nation uh by 1950 you know uh, after the united states of course um fills up this vacuum that is left after you know the United States government enacts the War Defense Act and starts producing consumer goods for the entire world. Of course, as a massive bottleneck, uh, with the U.S. having enacted the War the War uh, the Production Act, uh, and and they they fill that gap, and you see a boom, an economic boom in Western Germany, where all of the the main characters that I write about. Uh, end up um, being, you know, within a decade, within years, but within a decade, really, being back on top as as Germany's wealthiest men. And even a man like Friedrich Flick, who is, as I earlier said, you know, who is is sentenced and and, um, indicted and sentenced at Nuremberg for war crimes and crimes against humanity, is released, his... his, um, Sentence is commuted for good on good behavior behavior by John J. McCloy, who was the High Commissioner for Occupied Germany, and McCloy makes this political, purely politically expedient decision to release not only the industrialists that were sentenced at Nuremberg, but also you know tens of SS officers, high-ranking former SS officers, who were whose death sentence, who, who were sentenced to death even, and their, their death sentences were turned into life sentences, and then their life sentences were turned to release. You know, who were convicted of slaughtering hundreds of thousands, mainly Jews, mainly in Eastern Europe, um, because the United States government made this calculation where, well, they wanted to placate the Western German government of, of Chancellor Konrad Adenauer and the Western German public, who didn't want to see their men. In, in in a prison in Germany that was run by Americans. And, you know, they wanted West Germany as a strong ally and they wanted it to be their ally. They wanted to, to be a strong American ally. So Friedrich Flick is released, Alfred Krupp is released, but all these former high-ranking SS officers are also released. 
And that is really the most blatant example of the political expediency. I mean, there's the mass, of course, there's the mass policy decision in 1947 with the ensuing of the Cold War, but then there were the, the, the very particular decision of, of, of commuting sentences, prison sentences and death sentences of those convicted at, at this successive Nuremberg trial uh, is really a, a very brazen example of this political expediency. Definitely. And, you know, Friedrich Flick, Friedrich Flick is, is within 10 years, he's, 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 he's back as Germany's wealthiest man, as controlling shareholder of Daimler-Benz, following his release in, in, in 1950. In 1959, he's, um, you know, one of the world's richest men, even, as controlling shareholder of Daimler-Benz. So the, the connections, obviously, with Nazism were not, there, there wasn't justice, there wasn't a process for it. Um, and therefore, as you, you know, that's a great example, um, the, the wealth continues, the businesses continue. Um, but obviously, the patriarchs don't, they're not still around. Um, it's been long enough that now those businesses um, and that wealth and those legacies are now in the hands of their heirs, sometimes their children, often their grandchildren by this point. Um, and you mentioned at the very beginning of this, um, that part of why you chose these families is because they're still incredibly wealthy and powerful. And that a lot of these companies don't acknowledge the Nazi ties um, and legacies that they have. And yet you also talk about in the book that some of these families have been confronted with these histories, have done some kinds of investigations, sort of, kind of. So can you maybe tell us, a, give us an example or tell us a bit about how the heirs have kind of dealt with these legacies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what happens in Germany is... And, you know, the main examples I give in the book of the of the Quant family and the Flicks and uh, at least the Oetkers and, and, and um, you know, what they do is a scandal, a, a, a you know, an investor, a German journalist digs up, um, you know, spends years investigating or, or digs up the, the, the dark Nazi history of exalted patriarch, business patriarch X or beloved German company Z. And in response to that, to the media fury that, 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 that inevitably follows these revelations, there's the same tried and true method that is used by all these families is that they commission a academic, they, they commission a, a prominent academic German historian um, to, to, to investigate uh, their Third Reich history of the family and the companies they controlled back then. Um, and, you know, they, they open their archives and, you know, uh, a, um, this historian and, uh, and his um, fellow researchers um, you know, they spent four years in in archive in, in 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 the family's archives in archives all across Europe, sometimes the United States. And then a study is published in twelve hundred page, you know, academic German. And you know, it it, it a, a a reclusive air gives one mea culpa interview to the German media, but then nothing changes after that. You know the the crimes that are that that the that the academic describes in these studies, you know, the, all these facts, the, the 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 crimes of the patriarchs, they're all basically being hidden in in plain sight, because of course, by putting it in this twelve hundred page or fifteen hundred page, you know, dense academic 
German study, it of course becomes inaccessible to a larger audience, not only in Germany, but of course, you know, out, particularly outside of Germany, where of course most of the victims of these patriarchs and of the Nazi regime uh, were surviving forced and slave laborers, you know, though they don't have access to these studies uh, or their heirs. So in, it, it's being hidden in plain sight, which in turn uh, allows these heirs and their companies like BMW and Porsche to pretend like nothing has happened and to continue to maintaining uh, the Herbert Kwan Media Prize and to continue to work in the Gunter Quant House and to continue to maintain the Ferry Porsche Foundation and the and the BMW Foundation Herbert Quant or, or the Friedrich Flick Foundation, which today serves on the board of one of Germany's most prominent universities. So, you know, it begs the question, who exactly are these families reckoning with, right? Because for the most part, uh, the Germans were not a victim of, 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 their patriar- of the crimes of their patriarchs. Um, and uh, again, you know, their victims don't have access to these studies. Um, so it is basically paying lip service to Germany's, you know, heralded uh, memory culture, which are actually, in fact, they're sidestepping it. Um, you know, they can now point to this academic study and say, hey, it's all in there. But of course, you know, this never reaches um, a wide audience. So it's a very insidious way of kind of manipulating, in a way, saying, yes, we've done thorough research, but now it's all in there, but we're not actually doing anything with it. And your book is obviously also heavily researched, but not written in academic high German. Um, it's obviously, I've read it in English, <laughs> um, but it's also in a trade publication. It's HarperCollins, right? It's available. Um are you hoping for a different reaction? Have you received any reactions from the families? Were you able to get any information from them? I mean, I had one heir, uh, a grandson of Friedrich Flick, who's in, based in London, who's now in his late 70s, who, who commented to me for the we corresponded, and I cite some of the correspondence in, in notes of source on the book. But, for, but, but with him as the exception, none of the other family members, none of the heirs wanted to comment for my book. And, um, and, you know, some of the family office spokespeople or, or their uh, company spokesman, you know, answered part of my questions, you know, not very earnestly, but more in a ducking and dodging kind of way. Uh, and, and most, you know, just never responded to my interview requests or to my questions or just send back no comments. Um, and you know the German translation, which was published um, May fifth in Germany, which is a really an incredible translation, um, is um, you know so far none of the families have reacted since my book, which was published in the in the, in the US and, and the UK on April nineteenth, and the German translation came out on May fifth. So far, you know none of the families and the companies have reacted, but you know we'll see if that is going to change as the uh, you know. Yeah, we will see. The media, the media attention keeps continuing, and um, and um, you know, um, people are becoming more and more aware of how these families are manipulating and whitewashing history. Mm. And this is something, obviously, that you've worked on for quite a while. And before that, you were working on it as well um, on the beat that you were given. Um, so this is something you've engaged with quite closely, um, and. So there's, you know, over quite a period of time. And so as a reader, there were a lot of details in it that I was surprised by. 
Um, but obviously I've not spent nearly as much time on this as you have. So was there anything in particular that jumps out when you were doing the research, particularly for this book, that really just you were not expecting? I mean, I think, and you can call me naive, but I think it was the size, of the, the, the breadth of the involvement of, of the families I'm writing about. And I guess of, of Germany business, the German business at large, uh, their involvement, their collaboration with the Nazi regime, you know, their involvement with massive forced enslaved, the exploitation of massive forced enslaved labor, the massive uh, ex- expropriation of of Jewish and uh, of Jewish citizens of of the German uh, of, of Nazi Germany, but also of citizens of of um, of, of Nazi occupied territories. And they're, they're massive involvement with, with with arms production. I think naively, you know, I think it was going to be less for some reason. I think the crime, I thought the crimes that it was going to be less blatant, less brazen, less, I don't know, opportunistic, perhaps some sort of reflection, but on parts of the patriarchs or on parts of the heirs for, for that for that matter. But, you know, I couldn't really find any such things. So I think that that's what most... I think the breadth of the involvement is, um, uh, and the lack of reflection is what still stuns me, I guess, the most. That makes sense after reading the book. That is pretty, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, so you have been working on this, obviously, for quite a long time. But as you've just mentioned, right, the book came out in the US and the UK in April. It came out in Germany in May. It's now somehow the beginning of June. Um, so what are you working on now or next? So I've 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 just begun working. Um, I just moved to Tel Aviv, um, and I've just started working um, as a Middle East correspondent uh, for the Dutch Financial Daily, which is the Netherlands' uh, daily financial newspaper. And um, yeah, so I'm you know I'll be covering the Middle East for the next uh, the next couple of years. All right. Well, maybe that will also result in a book that will be interesting. Yeah. Who knows? Um, so. I guess uh, listeners can keep an eye out for your byline um, on the Middle East now. Uh, But in the meantime, or if they want to stick with German history for now, um, they can read the book we've been discussing in this episode, which as a reminder is titled Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties, published by HarperCollins in 2022, written by David de Jong, who has, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Miranda. It was a pleasure.